Our reading this morning comes from 2 Peter 3, 8 to 13. Starting in verse 8. But do not ignore this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some think of slowness, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the and then the heavens will pass away with a loud noise, and the elements will be dissolved with fire, and the earth and everything that is, that is done on it will be disclosed. Since all of the things are to be dissolved in this way, what sort of persons ought you to be in leading lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of, uh, because of which the heavens will be set ablaze and dissolved, and the elements will melt with fire. But in accordance with his promise, we wait for new heavens and a new earth, where righteousness is at home. Just as a lead in, I'm thinking about the songs that we've sung together. We talked about the angels that are encamped around us. We've invited God's spirit to be here and to move in our midst. We've sung together and prayed together about what God wants to do with his people. And the reality is that depending on our understanding of what the end times bring, it can make a difference in how we sing, what we reflect on, how we pray, there would be little point in praying for transformation, praying for revitalization as a body or, or even within any family or even any individual if the hopelessness of the world ever changing were what wins the day and, and ends up keeping us from being able to even think about how God may be at work in bringing about a new thing. And that's why we sing these songs, not just songs of hope, but songs of actually challenging ourselves to, to embrace the call of God. And we never know when that will be. So today, as we think about the end times, think about what scripture teaches us, we think about God's timing. One story, there was a pastor in Atlanta by the name of Mason Betha. He, he uh, actually, about 20 years ago, he was uh, pastoring a church of about 100 people. But he hadn't always been a pastor. In fact, he was uh, formerly known as the rapper Mace, the flashiest, most pleasurable, driven performer on the Bad Boy record label. His transition from bad to good was rather abrupt. He didn't switch to gospel music or to gospel rap. He just left the music industry. He broke with friends and associates. He gave away, gave away lots of possessions um, that had shaped his persona 
a Range Rover, a BMW, a Mercedes convertible, a diamond-encrusted Rolex worth more than most American homes. He gave it all away. He also left his huge contract with the Bad Boy Entertainment uh, or, uh, Company and Arista Records. He said, there was no great emotional experience. Mason says of his turnaround, I was just sitting in a hotel room and I decided I can't do this no more. People be looking for this big explanation, but when it's God's time, it's God's time. And so he literally in that moment, very uneventful, said, I'm done with all of this. It's time. It's time. Now, I don't know if you're looking for a rock-bottom experience to motivate. I'm not sure what you think of being ready for the end times or being prepared for it. I know that I read yesterday, I looked up online, and, and, uh, and I read this incredible collection. I, I won't refer to any specific, but if you ever Google people who have predicted the end times, the list is exhaustive, and it runs from 150 years ago, actually even longer than that, centuries ago, right up until the last few years where people were still making predictions about when it would happen. And you've heard stories of people leading a group and leading their flock. So if you ever, if you ever, ever hear from me or any of us as pastors that we're going to go out to Harrison Hill having sold all of our possessions and we're going to meet the Lord because he's coming because, you know, Doug figured out exactly in his mathematical genius exactly how and when the Lord was going to come. Uh, if you ever hear that from us, don't do anything. Uh, don't disregard it uh, and talk to an, one of the elders, one of the leadership board persons. Uh, that it's amazing how many people think about God's timing and try to somehow take on the ability to tell what God's timing is. And we like to do that because that gives us a greater sense of control. We, we think it does, at least that's the impression of it, is, well, if we know for sure, we have more control over it. We don't know. But the one thing that we do know from scripture is that God is always on time. Now, I don't know if you uh, know anybody, uh, anyone, period, this would be a challenge. Do you know anyone who has always, always, always been on time? Probably not. Not always. But there are variations in that skill and that ability and that commitment to be on time. And, and there is an impact. So I have wondered, the one thing I was looking at in this list was whether or not there were those that, that uh, and they listed these dates, about half of the group ended up going on and saying, oh, well, no, it's not this year, it's next year. And there was one Christian leader that did it like three or four years in a row. And finally, he ended up, he ended up predicting a decade in the future. 
It's like, well, okay, I missed it four years in a row. Maybe I should, you know, make it a bigger time. And, and you know, I, I'm not trying to, to uh, be mean to those persons, but, but they're, they're, they're really not trusting in God's timing. They're trying to figure God out. And that's not what scripture tells us. So we're going to be looking at scriptures this morning. Um, and, you know, it is clear in the teaching of the New Testament, Jesus is coming back at the end of time. In fact, over 50 times in the New Testament, Christians are encouraged to, to be ready for the second coming. In the Bible, there are 1,845 references to the second coming which outnumbers the references to Jesus' first coming by an eight-to-one margin. That's a lot of references and a lot of emphasis on the, on the second coming of Jesus. Let's look at it in Matthew. If you have your Bibles with you, uh, turn to Matthew 24, starting at verse 34. Matthew 24, verse 34. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Now, that can be a confusing statement uh, because that generation did pass. But uh, again, we'll, we'll talk more about what the timing is. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And then uh, in Matthew there in verse 36 But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it it was in the days of Noah, so will it be with the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days of the flood, people were eating, drinking, marrying, and and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be with the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in a field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. Therefore, keep watch. And there, you know, it says, whenever there's a therefore, we ask, what is it there for? It means a point of emphasis. Keep watch because you do not know what um, you do not know on what day the Lord will come. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would, have, uh, and would not have let his house be broken into. So you must also be ready because the Son of Man will come in an hour when you do not expect him. In other words... Um, we aren't going to know. And so to spend all this time trying to figure it out exactly so that we can make sure that everything is, is prepared for that is, is, not, is missing the whole point. We're called to live faithfully. And we'll see that more as we move into it. Um, there's a lot of work for us to do. And I'm jumping ahead, but I'll tell you, if you think about what happens every 30 minutes, every 30 minutes, and this is, this is outdated. This is from 2008. Um, 
from a database, every 30 minutes, 7,764 souls began life in the world. They were, in other words, were born and, and or were conceived. Uh, 3,444 souls went to meet Jesus face to face. 3,420 baptisms occurred in foreign mission. $1,311,000 were given to foreign missions. Get this. $1,368,000 were embezzled from Christian funds by leaders. Uh, let's double check. Let's get our finance committee up. Make sure that, uh, that my name isn't on any of the checks. I mean, that, that is sad to think about that. Every 30 minutes... A million and eight hundred thousand dollars, or a million three hundred thousand. Every thirty minutes, ten thousand eight hundred ninety-six people are migrating internationally. Four hundred and two children become homeless or familyless. Twenty-two hundred and seventy-five of the poor migrate to the cities because they can't make it. 1,140 people move to move uh, to urban slums. 68 people began supporting themselves by collecting garbage every 30 minutes. 22 million was given to all Christian causes. Three percent of that uh, is from uh, is from Christian incomes. <coughs> Excuse me. Ten. Christians died for their faith witness every 30 minutes. Those are depressing, right? Those would cause us to say, well, we want the Lord to come. And so let's predict it, expect it, and and, uh, just give up, pack it in. We are either left with the choice of becoming more anxious, having doubts, anxiety, fears, or with the choice of longing with joy in joyful expectation and with confidence at what is going to come. Some, one person said all of life could be defined this way. There are really only two things. One, God's actions. And two, our response. So we always struggle when we try to control God's actions or we try to get God and, and to, to cooperate with what we want. And we struggle with that because the bottom line is that we need to let God do God's job and choose our response by his call through scripture and in faithfulness. We talked a few weeks ago, a couple weeks ago, about the, uh, about the, the ways in which the people that Paul, Peter was writing to were being persecuted. And Paul wrote to the Corinthians much the same thing, this concern about this persecution. Now, we aren't persecuted in the way that they were, we're persecuted by our own lifestyles and creations and our own struggles and our own desire to, to, to 
have the things we want, get the things we want, and we struggle with God's cooperating with us. But, but many of the scoffers that Peter referred to are people who basically are saying, this, we're choosing to not follow God, and we're choosing basically to say, where is your God? When will they show up? And isn't that always the case? It's like some, uh, 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 Jesus comes to earth, lives this life, does all these miracles, has all this evidence, over 500 and some witnesses to his personal, physical resurrection. And we still want to say, but where are you, God? God will do miraculous things. And we still say, well, I don't see any evidence because we don't want to see the evidence or embrace it. So the question is, what do we do in response to this while God has, has not sent his son to return? The end times haven't come, and we don't know when they will come. And we need to give that up, trying to figure it out. But what we shouldn't give up is how are we going to respond in the meantime? How well are we going to wait? Are we going to wait well and do what God called us to do? It is really interesting um, to see how Peter responded to this. So on the one hand, Peter is giving a warning to those who are not prepared for the second coming. But he's also giving an encouragement to those who are believers in the second coming and saying, but in the meantime, we've still got work to do. We don't just quit and wait. We actively pursue what God has called us to. And so uh, our response, if, if all of, of life is about God's action and our response, then the question really is, how well will we choose? And what do we have to choose from the menu? Notice, going back to the scripture that was read in verses uh, 11, uh, and starting at verse 11, since everything will be destroyed in this way, so he's, he's, predict, he's called for this. What kind of people ought you to be is the way the version, that one version, I think it's the NIV goes. And it says, and then he answers his own question, Peter does. You ought to live godly and holy lives as you look forward to the day of God. So you look forward, but you stay busy. You look forward to it, you be, you're ready for it, you're longing for it, but in the meantime, and I know I've told you this story before, but I'll tell it again because um, I was thinking a lot about my mom last week with Mother's Day. And, um, and my mom was incredible. She was the strongest woman of faith that I ever knew. And she... Um, she would never waste a moment. Even if she was sitting on the couch, she would be doing embroidery. So she was resting, but she was working. And we were at a convention one time where, where there was an open mic and people were disagreeing about a topic and it was getting pretty testy. And some people were really loud in their opinions about this issue that was being debated and it got really fiery. 
And it was kind of, you know, all the kids were like paying attention. Like, you know, I was, I was with the youth department sitting in the bleachers of this school gymnasium. And we were just sitting there watching these people red-faced yelling at each other. And in the middle of that, I went down to look and see my parents, see what their reaction to it all was. And I looked down there, and there's my mom doing needlepoint. In the middle of all of that, she was doing the work of the Lord because she would embroider just over her lifetime. I can't imagine how many pieces she gave to the relief sale. Hand embroidered all kinds of things. That was an image for, that stuck with me in so many ways, is that just because this is all going on and it could pull me away from it, I'm going to stay the course. I'm going to do what Peter is talking about here in these verses, because he goes on to say, you need to not only live a holy lives, but look forward to the new heaven and the new earth in the meantime, be faithful. And so here's what our choices. Here's a few, a few choices we can make. Not knowing when, it can be scary to think about it, but we also know that we have a hope way beyond this life. But a couple of choices. One is to accept a perspective of hope that is given by scriptures and given by Jesus. In Matthew 10, 28, we read, do not be afraid of those who will kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. Paul also told the, told the Corinthians in uh, 2 Corinthians 4, he said, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. I know that sounds that sounds sort of simplistic, right? Well, just wait because we'll, we'll have a glory in heaven. Um, but it is this thing of saying, do, do we really believe that there is a redemptive and eternal purpose for our salvation? If we don't believe that, we've got nothing to look forward to. And then we get anxious and worry. But if we have that and we embrace that and we receive that promise, and it will make a difference in our perspective. You know, Peter was writing to a group of people that were really challenged. They lost their jobs, their property. They were denied access to public markets. They suffered many other indignities. And some, many of them would lose their life because of their faith. We aren't anywhere near that. And yet we probably complain more than, than most cultures do. Um, so how do we change our perspective? Well, to Christians who are faced with hardship and difficulty, the message of the end time was much needed, a much needed doctrine. So this isn't just an idea that Peter's writing about. This is a clear doctrine consistent through all of scripture. And if it's a, if it's something that is a doctrinal clarity that, that we're offered, we need to embrace it and live it. A presence to sustain us is the second thing that we can choose. Jesus said often, 
Behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And even when I go physically, I will send my spirit to be with you. And he'll remind you of all that I said and taught. The presence and power of God is always with us. So it's not just, um, it's not just having a change of perspectives. That change of perspective will be reinforced by recognizing that God is with us. And, and that's something that we need to embrace and hold on to dearly. A third thing that we can choose is a promise. The promise that when God spends all this time in Scripture telling us about the place he prepared for us, are we going to believe it and follow it and live it and expect it and actually say, there's nothing you can do for me that will take that away. There's nothing. You know, you can, you can persecute me in any way you want, but I know I'm in the Lord's hands and I know that the timing of my life, I don't know when that will be. I would guess that almost every person here has thought at one point or another about when your life will end. Does that sound familiar? We watch all kinds of, th- uh, of movies and things that cause us to, to sometimes worry or fear. We watch portrayals of people dying all the time. If it's not the reality of the news, it's the fiction that we take in in books and movies and all of that kind of stuff. We see it portrayed, and when we're honest, we think about when that time will come. Um, When I will just say that when you've had experiences of being close to death, you do think about it quite a bit. You tend to think about it more, more frequently, I think, than other people do. Because you've been very close, and you know that that time could come, and we don't have control over it. And so those are the times that we especially need to go back to the presence of God with us and let it make a difference. And also to embrace and to choose that this is a promise for us to prepare for. If God's coming back, we know it, we believe it, we trust it, and we live as if we know we will have victory. Peter's not giving us a formula so that we can calculate the exact day. He's simply saying that God's plans are not short term. And if we get focused only on the short term, we miss the point. Um, Have you ever seen an athlete or a performer who makes one mistake and they just quit? They just walk off. Now, that happened just the other, the other day, uh, a couple weeks ago, when there was a basketball game in the NBA where a player, there was a play, and all of a sudden the player literally just ran off the court and out, out the tunnel to the locker room. And nobody could figure out, nobody does that. You don't just walk off the court. Well, he didn't. He ran off the court because he was very sick. And he didn't want to... Uh, he didn't want to get nauseous in front of how many thousands of fans. So you can understand that. But, but you don't just stop. You, may, you miss one note on the piano. Um, and, and I, yeah, I'm not talking about, I'm not remembering anybody here. 
But I have heard people who have played the piano or played an instrument or sang a song where they missed a note and afterwards said, oh, I'm so sorry, it was terrible, and they felt terrible about it, and it's like, come on. Is, does that determine the end result? No, not one bit. And in fact, um, in fact, it, it didn't take anything away. It was an offering for the praise of God. So worrying about making a mistake here and there or worrying about not always doing things exactly the way God wants us to is not the worry. We have a promise to prepare for that we will have victory over. Jesus was very conscious of timing. In three times in John, at least, John 2, 4, he says, my time has not yet come. In John 7, 6, he said, the right time for me has not yet come. In John 7:30, he says, his time had not yet come. Peter tells us that the second coming of Christ is a matter of timing that God has not sent Christ back to earth yet because he wants everyone to come to a repentance. He wants everyone to, to be able to have a chance at salvation. That's God's heartfelt desire. So we need to live as if we believe that that coming is our redemption. And fourth, we need to choose a purpose to accomplish. And that's what Peter was saying is, hey, you know, as long as you're here, keep busy. Maybe the reason so many of us have trouble living holy and blameless lives, as Peter said, is because we forget that he's coming back. He also reminds us that there is a connection between the Bible and our daily lives, God's word and written word and God's lived word. Therefore, we should be looking forward to these things, he said, diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. So in all of this, Jesus is coming soon. For each of us individually, it could be any time at the moment we die, we will be face to face with our creator because we're very conscious. Now, the problem is that we really, we forget what is the most important to basically have these questions to be able to answer. And the questions are, what will I do in the meantime? It's not a question of whether there is redemption or Christ will come. He will come. And if it doesn't come in my lifetime, it will come at some point. It doesn't matter. In the meantime, the church needs to rise up and do what the church is called to do. I need to rise up and live like I'm called to live. And that gets criticized by a million people out there. There are so many people out there who are the scoffers who basically say, oh, the Lord, your Lord's not coming it's not going to happen in your lifetime. You might as well give up that silly belief. And, and then we go back to these scriptures. The Lord will come or my life will come to the Lord like a thief in the night. And are we prepared? And we're prepared with these choices of being able to affirm that we really believe in the hope of heaven.
that we really believe in the ultimate redemption of Christ. The people of God are not merely to mark the times or the dates, but rather we're to model the new heaven and the new earth, and by doing so, be part of God's mission to help other people and to find wholeness in their lives. And so, what are we able to do and contribute to that? How do we respond to it? Uh, There was a missionary that was active in China when the country was taken over by a communist regime. Missionary was arrested and subjected to severe questioning and mental torture. Throughout the procedure, he would uh, continually uh, utter a quotation from Psalms 31.15. My times are in your hands. So they'd be pushing him and shoving him, hitting him and questioning him and grilling him with questions uh, and whatever, they would just keep pushing him and saying, you know, to, to answer. And every time he would say that phrase, my life is in his hands. And he describes what he said, the missionary does, that he was in the final ordeal and they were pushing him so hard with mental torture that they provided for him a knife to end his own life. And he took the knife and he said, my times are in your hands. And he reports that this made the interrogation person so angry, he just started screaming at this missionary. And uh, he said, he said, where are you getting that from? And uh, he picked up the missionary's Bible and he threw it down in front of him. Where are you getting this? And the Bible had fallen down and laid open. It laid open to Psalm 31, the very page that the verse was listed where it says, my times are in your hands. And so the missionary points out to this Bible laying there without ever touching it, points to the verse, and it made the interrogation officer so angry that he cussed at him and walked out of the room and left. A little while later, he was released and freed. My times are in your hands. My times are in your hands. That's something that we can keep repeating. It doesn't matter what time this will happen or that will happen. What matters is I know that my times are in your hands. In Jeremiah it says, and I'm going to invite the team to come up now because this this is going to be a challenge for some of you. I don't know if you can envision yourself dancing in heaven. I know that many of you can't envision yourself dancing now. I can't either for myself. But I find it interesting in Jeremiah 31, 
12 and 13. It says, They will come and shout for joy on the heights of Zion. They will rejoice in the bounty of the Lord, the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, the young of the flocks and herds. They will be like a well-watered garden. They will sorrow no more. Then young women will dance and be glad. Young men and old men. Thank you, thank you. As well, I will turn their mourning to gladness. I will give them comfort and joy instead of sorrow. And in Psalms 30, you turn my wailing into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy that my heart may sing your praises and not be silent. Lord my God, I will praise you forever. Now I don't know what that means or how you hear that, but I hear that as a calling to live until the Lord returns, until we're in heaven. In the meantime, we're going to live under the praise of knowing that we can dance because the joy of the Lord is our strength and he is with us and will never leave us or forsake us. Embrace this song and sing this song. Whether you want to dance or not is irrelevant, but please dance in your hearts. Please dance in your minds of of thinking about the joy of the victory that God gives us. No matter what time it is, God is always on time in our lives as we continue to give him our trust. And may we rejoice. Would you stand and sing as we share? Closing song.